0: All right, everybody, welcome back to the First Person Scholar podcast. We're very excited to have two special guests with us today. I'll let them introduce themselves in just a moment. But other than that, you got me, as always, of course, your lovely host, Colin Walsh. Uh, if you're looking for me online, you can find me on Instagram at cwglassworks or at www.cwglassworks.ca. So what are we getting into today, folks? Well, we're going to be talking about the popularity of post-nuclear settings or actually post-apocalyptic settings in general in video games. So we're gonna talk about what exactly that means, uh, what it means for the player, what it means in an overarching context for games in general, and uh, just generally have a lovely conversation about things. So first and foremost, I'm just gonna go around the circle here and allow everybody a couple minutes to introduce themselves. Uh, We'll start with Dakota.
1: Sure, thanks Colin. Hi everyone, I'm Dakota. I'm a fourth year PhD candidate in the Department of English Language and Literature at the University of Waterloo. Also the section head of commentaries here at First Person Scholar. my interest in games and games research is sort of a side project, so to speak, to my primary interest, which is sort of all literary objects um, encompassing television games, um, especially sort of traditional literary texts and sort of how they represent um, specifically like labor injustice, labor advocacies, and sort of what the intersectional um, elements of those are with um, other concerns that are um, sort of very pressing on our minds, pretty much anything under the purview of EDI and sort of how these things intermingle, interact and sort of come back to the way that labour should work and sort of how it's not working in a lot of important ways.
2: Hello, Uh, I'm Dr. Christopher McMahon. I'm a lecturer at the University of Liverpool in digital media and culture. I've uh, recently had a book published called uh, The Corruption of Play, Mapping the Ideological Play Spaces of AAA Video Games, and that is like uh, very much my focus. I love having a look at why AAA video games are the way they are, uh, what the contents of them mean, so like, not just narrative, like why do the menus look the way they look, why do the maps look the way they look, why is it so terrifying that microtransactions work the way they do. So... Um, That is really my focus, and I do spend quite a lot of time in the book uh, talking about Fallout, specifically Preston Garvey. So it's very much my focus on uh, post-apocalyptic video games. But I also do a fair bit of research on sports, uh, especially football and social media. And so there's a bit of a video game link there. I'm starting some stuff on AI as well, so that's all very exciting. But uh, my primary focus is AAA video games and their ideological content.
3: My name's Autumn Wright. I'm a critic and essayist. I mostly write about video games and anime. uh, Apocalypse Fiction has been a recurring thematic interest of mine Um, for the past few years. I've written a column at Unwinnable Monthly about Apocalypse Fiction.
0: Awesome! Thanks very much, folks. Once again, we're very excited to have everybody here today join in on the conversation with us. So to begin with, uh, I've spent probably a good 25 or 30 hours over the past month, uh, you know, maybe an hour or two every day in the Mojave Wasteland. Uh, <laughs> and I gotta say, patrolling the Mojave Wasteland really makes you wish for a nuclear winter. Aside from that, I mean, I mean, this is a game that we're talking about. It's almost a decade and a half old at this point, a game that originally came out in 2010, right? Um, And I think some of the experiences I've had with it are going to lead into a future episode about how games age. Because, I mean, the mod list alone, the uh, installation guide recommends just to get this game running on a modern PC hardware is about uh, 70 mods deep. (laughs) So, Aside from that, despite the fact that we're talking about a game that, you know, I had to put a little TLC into to get running, to get going, um, to get back into the play with. I was surprised at how poignant this experience has held up especially with a, a little bit of uh, nudging in the right direction with things like the Josh Sawyer mod who was one of the uh, original developers um this is a modification that kind of tweaks the uh, the gameplay in a way that made it a little bit more faithful to what his uh, incarnation of the game would have looked like so let's just say uh a little bit more intense a little bit more uh survival based right so with these kind of modifications on top of the base vanilla gameplay and everything like that i really came into this experience expecting just you know it's not going to hold up it's going to you know it's a 15 year old game i'm not going to experience the same way i did when i was like 16 17 18 years old whatever it was but no you know what if anything i i coming back to this from you know kind of a more nuanced perspective as an adult as a as an older adult and having you know these modifications that made me look at this game in a much more intense survival oriented perspective incredibly incredibly poignant in terms of what i'm taking away from this in terms of the things i'm doing the choices i'm having to make the 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 morality of this i know it's kind of cliche to talk about morality in a video game but when you're really trying to i should probably preface this by saying i'm the kind of guy who really likes to play the good guy in most of the adventures i'm on right but i mean hell if i'm not stealing trying to get just a 10 bullets for my nine millimeter handgun so i'm not going to get my butt handed to me in the next encounter right and i mean i think that was Probably the biggest takeaway I've had from this setting and this experience with the the twenty five thirty hours I spent in the Mojave wasteland this month is is at least for me like the the power in that setting is in that morality and the the sheer like intensity you have to make in terms of your decision making It's not always easy, rarely is even when you're talking about pixels lines of code things like that at least for me, I feel like you do feel an intense impact you do feel something real something that makes the game a little bit more uh, gives it a little bit more punching weight right and i think that's what we're here about uh, to talk about today or talk about your experiences with it if you experience something similar if you experience something different and how you think that setting gives that punching weight to the game how it makes it worthy of talking about and having discussions like this so yeah take it away folks are really interested in hearing what you have to say
2: yeah just to, just to build on something you've said like um something that really know as well about fallout uh related to what you said with the morality system as well the game especially when you're playing with the survival stuff on it does get substantially easier when you are bad (laughs) as it were and like i always think that's really interesting and very cool because the thing with the post-apocalyptic games that's a nice focus is like how how do the mechanics of the game make you feel like it is the post-apocalypse so, you know, you can have the wonderful post, you know, environmental storytelling of like, you know, things have happened splayed across the side of like a derelict bathroom wall and stuff like that. But how does the things that you actually have to do to advance in the game make you feel like the apocalypse have happened? And I feel like the survival stuff in Fallout is very good at making you doing that. Cause as you said, you know, I need to go steal some bullets, which is a bad thing, or you know what, I need to rob this shopkeeper blind because I need to get those caps to advance this to do that. And I always thought Fallout has been very good at doing that and making you feel as though, like, yeah, bits of civilization are falling apart here. Bits of it are here, but if I can get around them, it gets far easier for me.
0: <laughs> and, I mean, that's the thing with the uh, with the shoplifting and the stealing and everything like that. It's not even like I'm trying to, like, fleece the game or game the system and do an exploit to get, like, infinite caps or something like that. When I say I'm trying to get 10 bullets for my 9 millimeter, I'm trying to get 10 bullets for my 9 millimeter, right? And that, that's it. That's all there is for me to take in the first place. And again, that's that's what's really making it interesting to me. That's what makes it a more impactful moral decision. Those 10 bullets mean just as much for that vendor, if not more, than they do to me.
3: Yeah, I mean, what comes up for me in hearing that discussion is the idea that society is portrayed in Fallout, but also like The Last of Us. A lot of post-apocalyptic fiction um, as like rules break down uh, and we have to revert to stealing. Um, Basically, yeah, like the social order breaks down in the post-apocalyptic setting of law fiction. And I've written a bit about this throughout my work where I think that's a very like pessimistic and nihilistic view. The idea that like humans cannot organize themselves without quote unquote civilization, as if like the government structure that is no longer there is the thing that is making us cooperative and working together. Um, and like what ends up being filled in this void after uh, at the end of history, basically here is like a libertarian colonial fantasy of people who are powerful uh can stay in power, you know?
0: No, I, I'm sure Chris has some great things to say on that point as well. I mean, um, Preston Garvey uh, certainly is the glue that holds a lot of um. Let's say society together, at least for me and my I haven't played Fallout 4, I think, since launch, but I mean, uh, for me, he was, again, kind of the glue that held a lot of that community building together, right? And I don't necessarily think on the point you were saying, Autumn, um, like, you're right, I think a a total societal collapse or a total collapse of of rule or cooperation is a bit of a pessimistic, nihilistic view. Because, because again, you're always going to have a character like Preston Garvey, and again, maybe Chris has something to say about this, because I think he's a little bit more intimately acquainted with the character than I am, but you're always going to have somebody like that, or somebody like me even. Like I said, I do generally prefer to play the good guy on my adventures, who's hopefully to be able to overcome that decision to steal the 10 bullets, but uh, I don't know, I just, I do find it interesting that it becomes a much more difficult decision to make, right? Like, I think a lot of us like to think deep down, we're good people, we're a good soul, we'll do the right thing, but... You know, I also like not dying in the middle of a desert,
2: so. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, like 100%. Like, just um, first off as well, like, awesome, I completely agree. Like, uh, the the pessimism of it is very frustrating, because I think another huge thing with post-apocalyptic video games, not just Fallout, I should say, it does feel like a huge open goal has been missed uh, to imagine different ways groups and societies could organize themselves because fallout does fall so easily back into the enclave like you say the libertarian power fantasy like barely barter based markets because it does eventually just boil all down to caps it's like you know there could be a more interesting economy in there and stuff like that but like yeah and as you say with preston garvey i am fascinated by him because like in a narrative sense he gets annoying (laughs) but and then in the mechanical sense—it's kind of like necessary, but it, I always felt like it held Fallout Four back a bit, where it became so repetitive, as it having as you having to build society that way, of time and time again defending from raider attacks. Um, but yeah, I don't know what other people think, but like uh, my my extensive research and Garvey found that he's not—he doesn't seem that popular.
0: We'll take a poll on that one. Any opinions? <laughs> try to have no opinions on (laughs) fallout fair enough i mean that's actually a great point on that uh as you were kind of speaking of this i'm thinking you know we we do at least a couple of us in this conversation seem to be gravitating towards fallout maybe that's based on experience based on bias uh but where do we even define what a post-apocalyptic setting is because uh you know stereotypical gamer guy over here but uh some of my favorite games are um from soft games And I think when you think about it, a lot of those games do undeniably take place in post-apocalyptic settings, whether we're talking about something like Armored Core or um, Elden Ring. And again, it depends on how we define an apocalypse or something like that. But we're definitely talking about ruined societies, right? Societies that are past their primes, people, creatures, things that are trying to survive in these ruined worlds. And approached, I think, in a much different way than we would in something like Fallout or The Last of Us.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think Dark Souls is a great example of the way that um, Apocalypse is not just like setting, but it is also like the thematic core of what those games are about. And like, to me, I see Dark Souls as like uh, the three games are each cycles that are trying to end, but they just keep looping back because the flame just keeps getting relit. And by Dark Souls 3, like, there is just barely a flame hanging on, but it's enough for the world to not be able to change. And like, Ultimately, I think the move to the post apocalypse in Dark Souls is the very end of the final DLC of Dark Souls, uh, where uh, a painter can begin to make a new world. And, like, to me, the idea of the post apocalypse, and we could talk a lot about just defining this term, like, there's merit in defining, like, there's actual merit in arguing what these terms exactly mean, but, like, to me, post apocalypse means the start of a new history, something that is, like, uh, world that looks
0: fundamentally uh, different. I think I really enjoy that outlook, Adam, and I think that's a really succinct definition of uh, how we can, you know, view a post-apocalypse. I mean, regardless of any of the examples that we've spoken about so far, there really is some kind of, you know, apocalypse, some kind of cataclysmic event that really does kind of rewrite your perception of the world or how things are uh, supposed to move going forward. You know, whether that's something uh, that's a little bit more How shall we say, uh, special or interesting, you know, a little bit more uh, unique, like the way that FromSofts approached it in the Dark Souls franchise or a little bit more uh, stereotypical, like the way you might see it in a traditional uh, zombie apocalypse or, um, which we haven't even really spoken too much about yet, um, or, you know, a post-nuclear apocalypse like Fallout or something like that. Um, but you know what, actually while we're on the the topic of zombie apocalypse, um uh, there is one of us here who has a lot of experience with a couple games like that. Uh, I know Dakota, we haven't heard much from you yet this uh this this episode. Do you have anything you wanna you wanna say about some of the experiences you've had with a game like Rust or what was the other one uh you had a lot of experience with? Was it uh Dying Light or DayZ? Or am I wrong on both accounts? Uh,
1: mostly Rust, although it's fair to assert that there may have been a lack of differentiation at the beginning since it was originally envisioned as like a daisy clone. But yeah, a lot of my stuff that I've done, at least recently, I haven't played a ton of post-apocalyptic games unless, again, we sort of um, hold up that definition of what post-apocalyptic is for scrutiny. But for going by like what the game categories, the boilerplate things on Steam might be, um, maybe haven't played anything outside of Rust for a while. And I think Rust is sort of, Um, a bit of an outlier in the conversation so far because we focus sort of on um, narrative premise characters and rust is kind of lacking all of those things it's very much just sort of like a throw a bunch of players together in a sandbox there's no real npcs there's no real story you don't really know what's going on you're just given a bunch of tools and then sort of um maybe not so subtly pushed towards killing each other with these tools and doing all sorts of raider-esque marauder stuff. So um, it's interesting that that's the direction that sandboxes seem to go, especially when there's a post-apocalyptic setting. Is Again, like we're, instead of envisioning future, futurities, we're sort of falling back on examining sort of past habits or holding up aspects of sort of the colonialist aspects of sort of our contemporary society up for scrutiny by sort of paring back all of the dressings. But yeah, when it comes to Rust, I mean you're throwing your players into a wild west scenario there's no real code of conduct on how to behave apart from whatever sort of flimsy rules steam has for not getting banned from a game so like i don't know like hate symbols and stuff like that which do still crop up um given that there's like a number of uh modes of expression for players in the game including like painting flags and pictures and spray paint and all that type of stuff in addition to the usual chat function so you can imagine how things can um, get out of hand, especially when there's two to three hundred players um, in a current version instance or server of the of a world at any given time. But yeah, I I really like the point about sort of first to just address to go back a little bit um, this idea of like morality and the sort of dissonance and some of these narrative settings. So you know this idea you want to play as a good character, um, not in a post-apocalyptic game per se. Um, but I recently was playing through Red Dead Redemption 2 for the first time. And one of the things that really struck me is how there's a morality system in that game where the premise of the game is that you're sort of a mass murdering outlaw. So it's like you do the right thing, but then if you decide to do something that you're doing in the story missions outside of story mission, your honor takes a hit. And it's like, I just killed 37 people in like some small town shootout, but I robbed a stagecoach and didn't kill the person that was driving it. And now my honor has taken a hit. In addition to that, you've got like these cutscenes and character moments where your playable character, Arthur Morgan, constantly refers to himself as a murderer and sort of has this villainous ideation going on throughout the entire game. But then you can have these weird sort of moments that exist sort of outside of narrative space where Arthur can be a pretty good guy. He helps people out. He sees a KKK rally, he throws dynamite at them and blows them all up. But on the other hand, he's then goes and blows up a village himself and or doesn't wholly reject the eugenicist in the story who's talking about sort of the future of the white race and why this is the preeminent concern. So, yeah, I definitely think there's often a dissonance. I think as sort of um, Autumn brought up, there's the, I would really like to see a bit more of an eye towards futurity, which is something that I do with my own research too, like speculative proposals for sort of labor equity specifically, but I do dip into like other advocacies um, as as they're relevant to sort of labor and sort of um, just general human welfare. And I I think that that's important. We've we've done this premise quite a lot. We've sort of seen like, okay, if you take these societal safeguards and sort of authoritarian coercive institutions out of play, do we suddenly revert to sort of colonialist tribalism and go back to just lawlessness and wild west? Or is there some sort of moral imperative that goes beyond sort of codified laws that'll bring people together, senses of community, et cetera, et cetera. I'm of the opinion, similarly to autumn. I think that, yeah, there is something more going on there and like sort of humans exist before civilization, not the other way around. So we came to this point stands. The reason we'd probably circle back to that point again, at some point, hopefully with some cool new stuff uh, to show for it. Yeah, if anybody wants. jump in or weigh on anything i just said i know i was just talking for a lot so i'm going to take a sip of water and hopefully open the floor
3: yeah i mean see it does look like a failure of imagination that when uh capitalist structures uh and imperial governments fall what is replaced in them is just smaller versions of the same like colonial logics right and like this is something that like a decade ago uh fisher writes about uh with capitalist realism uh that book opens up with a criticism of uh, the movie Children of Men. Um, Yeah, we just like, um, I think like throughout uh, my criticism, I've been drawn to works that do want to do the work of imagining what does the world look like? Um, And like, you know, I think there's arguments to be made, um, have been made about why very popular post-apocalyptic Uh, settings and games especially seem to like just go to this for reasons we could talk about but stuff like blast stuff like fallout they're not really post-apocalyptic if we want to think of the apocalypse as a great changing of things a reordering of society as like it is originally intended and eschatology so like yeah i think like there's stuff we could point to that says that there's other futures to imagine and like there are better endings to our lives
1: yeah
2: 100 yeah 100 <laughs> yeah just like um just that like i add on to that as well like you know when you say that when the the capitalist and so on systems fall what comes like you know the little ones like uh a lot of the time i feel like a lot Of what gets constructed within post-apocalyptic video games is um, almost like a mechanical necessity sometimes, because I think it's interesting to like, because of course, like there's got to be a way to divvy up resources, and an easy way for for games like Fallout to do that is to just put in the economic systems we know, and then um, with zombie video games, like I think it's interesting to review them like whilst COVID. Is is like an ongoing thing because with the zombie video games, immediately a uh, government acts effectively. Like, well, tendency, you know, like *Dying Light* and *Resident Evils*, the government acts effectively. They close off the city and do all this. You know, there has to be an assumption that government works. Whereas, like, probably more critical game would let the zombie infection spread much further. <laughs> but obviously, like uh, the um, the way the game has to work, it needs a confined space. It can't give you the America or the UK to play with. It has to give you, like, Raccoon City. It has to give you whatever the name of the city is in Dying Light. I've forgotten I've not played in a while. Um, But that's another thing as well that i just like to add on as well. Like, definitionally, like, it is very loose. I I do think zombie games are post-apocalypse games, but, like, I feel like it's almost easy to forget about the post part because, really, zombie games are apocalypse games. Like the apocalypse is happening you are playing through the apocalypse it's not post <laughs> like uh well most of them anyway like you know you're very very much actively in the middle of the apocalypse so i don't know if that's like a little definitional foible that, <laughs> that like has to be considered
0: no no absolutely this is honestly one of the reasons why i love bringing folks like uh like you on and having these conversations with each other is because we can examine definitions which is one of my favorite things to do on this podcast because we do like to keep them loose uh we like we like to play with them like that we like to talk about them we like to differentiate we like to uh, talk about what those differentiations mean and how they can impact gameplay how they can impact narrative so yeah all of that at least to me and i'm sure to most of our listeners is totally valid and i i would personally agree that yeah in these games like uh fallout last of us all your your you know your hundreds and hundreds of uh zombie apocalypse games like the classics left for dead resident evil all that yeah you're playing through it you're right in the midst of it. Um, and I, I think it really is um, kind of like we were touched on, touched on earlier. A game, a game like um, Elden Ring even is, I think, an even better example than Dark Souls, where you're living after the shattering, right? Like they have a name for this cataclysmic apocalyptic event, and you're experiencing the world after it, the whole history written after it, right? Like I think I, I, I spent 300, 300 hours in that game, and still I think I have maybe a slightly loose grasp on the narrative but i mean like uh at least from what i understand going through that game you might hear whispers of what happened before things like that just a little hint here or there but for the most part the the perspective you're coming from is everything post-shattering and yeah if you want to talk about a post-apocalyptic game and what it can mean the experience you can gain from it i think Elden ring is a great great example of it and i'm always happy to talk about that game so
2: very happy to talk about Ollen Rink as well. <laughs> just like, uh, like you say, like, uh, FromSoft has that thing where the apocalypse is always there. Because, like, we haven't even mentioned Bloodborne yet. And, like, Bloodborne's probably closer to the zombie games in the fact that it's effectively a pandemic. And you're very much living with the aftermath of whatever that pandemic was. Like, I mean, I've sank a lot of hours into Bloodborne, but the way, as you said, with FromSoft, where games are, it's like, some something to do with some people that didn't want it, the people that did want it. I don't know. I'll have to watch the Vati video thing again. <laughs> but um, but yeah, with, with Elden Ring, like I think it's interesting in that I think a lot of the Dark Souls games give you choices with how to deal with the apocalypse, and a lot of them is normally let the apocalypse happen in a much worse way or a less worse way. Like so, I think like how the game gets you to confront it is interesting. Where you maybe don't see it in other ones with a because I haven't played through properly to the end of it but like something like horizon zero dawn where it's wanting you to get to the past and wanting you to find out what came before to like understand what happened more but then something like Death stranding where it brings forth that you are post-apocalypse and there's like just in case of the boilery type things like another apocalypse coming. That you then need to deal with, that you then have a choice of how to deal with it. So once again, I'm going back to my mechanical thing. Like your relationality as a player to the apocalypse, I think is always interesting. And Elden Ring has an interesting one where it's like, do you want to let it happen? Like we're automatically not making you the hero. Like I mean, do you want to go help this blue witch woman? Like fly the universe into into space? Like <laughs> that, that was my understanding of that <laughs> So like, um, I think player role is really interesting with this.
3: Yeah, I think like uh From Software does a really good job with its endings, making very like different like different endings in different From Software games, would say Initiate Apocalypse or Revert History. I'm not as familiar with all the endings of Elden Ring, but obviously like Dark Souls ones uh famous choice whether to light the fire or not, you know, says do you let this age end and like progress to what we could say is the post-apocalypse. Um or not and ultimately the choice. Meaningless for reasons that the next games get into. But yeah, and like a thing that's kind of been brought up is in Alden Ring, and I think like we could see this in Fallout Last of Us is the idea that like history haunts the quote unquote post-apocalyptic settings. Um, in a way where I think it suggests that like we haven't progressed past apocalypse yet. Um, we're still trying to figure that out. And it's not the shattering that's necessarily the apocalypse, um, that might be like a disastrous moments, um, but it is everything that's happening since the shattering and like the ultimate move to the post-apocalypse would come in the ending of Elden Ring and what you choose to do uh, to progress the world into a different
1: structure. This whole rhetoric of restoration too, of, of going back to like an established order is something that, I don't know, we've kind of dropped the COVID-19 pandemic, so I feel safe bringing this into, into here since that's sort of um, on within our purview. Um, but I don't know, it's just something that I found myself tired of hearing, like this insistence on returning to normal, on sort of abandoning even the good parts of the things that we learned, sort of the the potent, like equitable futurities of, um, you know, offering distance learning and education, given that that's probably what uh, makes the most sense to us here, um, making things that were previously mandated and sort of you couldn't think outside of the framework of like you have to be physically in space in person, surrounded by like hundreds of other people or going through hallways frequented by hundreds of other people. And we found a way to sort of not have to do that anymore. Like you already have these computers and all your assignments, Um, as a student are submitted online anyway so you have this device that sort of can become a portal to these same experiences but in terms of sort of maybe the humor of post-apocalyptic settings this idea that sort of the the past is a cipher to the present and the future or there's some necessity to return to an established order as a way of solving sort of the problems of the present which are an aberration a breakdown of this sort of necessary sort of ordering uh, status quo there's still the the humor of the fact that like this society broke down and led to this scenario, it clearly doesn't work given sort of the, uh, the change in circumstances and sort of the shifting of priorities in the face of this massive societal change. So really, and this is again, I guess, pointing an eye towards proposals and futurities versus sort of nostalgia, I guess, for an older way of, of doing things, but you sort of by necessity do need to envision something different. You have to imagine different forms of resiliencies because the ways that we did things before clearly don't work or we wouldn't be in this situation to begin with. And yeah, I would extend that argument somewhat to um what does the post-COVID landscape look like? While well, it probably shouldn't be entirely focused on just getting back to the way things were before the pandemic as though we learned nothing. So
3: yeah. Um I think one way that returning to normal emerges in our narratives is also in the idea of saving the world because it suggests that the world is worth saving even if you spend a whole game trying to stop a catastrophe that the current world itself has brought on it is such like an ingrained narrative in western culture that like saving the world is of the utmost importance and we don't really think of that as maintaining the status quo and so uh, one thing uh, that I am thinking of, though, to talk about, like, turning towards free what is, like, the more positive criticism of this thing? I'm thinking of the Morongi generation. Uh, came out a few years ago. It's about being a freelance photographer during, uh, basically, kaiju apocalypse of Earth. Um, it was made by a Maori developer, uh, and it's kind of inspired by the forest fires in Australia. But comes out early 2020 and really hits the zeitgeist of what it feels like to be going through the pandemic early on. Uh, DLC came out at the end of 2020 uh, that even had like a protest uh, level in it where you were photographing protest. And there is something in Umarangi Generation that does not suggest we should save the world. It kind of is like an acceptance that the world is ending. And I think there's a lot of fiction that has been criticized for its this perspective, but is basically saying that like young people are looking at how to accept the world as it is, even though they didn't create it. But they're accepting that they're powerless. And I'm thinking of like non-games media, like "Weathering with You" by Makoto Shinkai, uh, the anime film from a few years ago, uh, where at the end the characters choose not to sacrifice themselves to save the world, but to like love each other and live in a world that is going through a climate apocalypse
0: yeah I'm really enjoying that perspective on things um like bo- both both the per- perspectives you were just speaking of, both in terms of like uh understanding that perhaps the status quo isn't something we should be putting up on a pedestal, something we should be glorifying so much should be trying to get back to, and also kind of uh the acceptance of change, I think is something that a lot of these games have a message to speak about that is not so easily digested or, or talked about in a lot of these conversations because um i i think the ending to to new vegas like the overall ending not the mo- uh the uh hoover dam ending but the dlc ending with lonely road uh kind of speaks a little bit about this about how like in these scenarios where you are effectively writing a new history where you know if we if we put the past completely outside of this we are living in a truly post-apocalyptic setting you know we are looking for for a path forward to accept the change from whatever event has happened or we we are going through we're looking at the uh the epilogue so to speak like that that acceptance is i think can be a hard thing to find especially going through all the hardships that you just went through right whether that be the pandemic whether that be a nuclear apocalypse a zombie apocalypse whether that be uh the shattering and everything that comes along with it whether that be um you know the uh the lighting of the bonfire and gradual extinguishment of the of the flame in in the dark souls franchise or even um the outright ending of an entire planet like we're we're going to see uh apparently in the new armor core game right i think uh you know like kind of outside of the experience of video games of putting myself in the shoes of somebody finding themselves in a situation like that whether that be on a in a microcosm in real life like like again with the pandemic being a person in a younger generation inheriting a You know, I don't want to call it a doomed world, but, you know, we have a lot of a lot of things that are going to challenge our generation in terms of uh, climate change, uh, energy crises, things like that. Right. And I think finding the strength to kind of accept the world that we're inheriting and choosing to make the correct decisions going forward instead of kind of resenting ourselves and our species for that is going to be. A a big part of it, and I think a big part of the message that these games have to have to teach us sometimes through the experience of their gameplay, and through their mechanics and through their narratives.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, like, um, really, like, video games will like have a role to play all that in all this. Like, obviously, you don't want to put them on like a pedestal or anything like that, or demand too much. Or say, there's a moral imperative for games to, you know, do do the right thing and stuff like that. Like, for a large portion of the industry, games are going to have to just sell well. Um, so like, whereas you probably might struggle to get a triple A dealing critically with these issues, but the other games that have been mentioned can, like smaller indie games and stuff like that, and then um, maybe games where there's not so much as an emphasis on like action, because like a lot of the games we've mentioned so far, you know, you've got an avatar, you've got a, you got a, you got a guy that's got to do some fighting, but like other games with different types of mechanics can do different things, so like uh, can explore these issues that we're talking about in different ways. So like to build on some that's been mentioned, like a game like Frostpunk can. Deal with like labor issues. Obviously, there's a, the steampunk Victorian context, but there's always been like one wonderful little prompt that tends to happen very early on. If you don't optimize your gameplay and put your children straight to work, um, you can like for those that don't know Frostpunk, please look that up. That's uh, I haven't just said something horrible. Uh, you can uh, you can build child shelters rather than have children go collect coal. And the people, one person will come up to you, and you and the those two meters of Frostpunk. There's a is it? There's like discontent and hope. And like hope will raise if you put kids in children's shelters. And it's adults and parents who go, When we were back in the old world, our children had to work, but now you've decided they don't. And then there are lots of little choices like that through Frostpunk, where it's like, do you want to optimize labor or do you want to try and do something else? Because this is a new world. So I think it's interesting that a game that does do that. Is a game that doesn't look like you have a guy with a gun with a sword who has to go do some choosing and swording. You you are doing something else here or imagining new things.
3: Yeah. And like I mentioned, Umrangi generation, you're a photographer. You take pictures. There's it's an incredibly inventive game with how it uh, gamifies taking a picture and everything. Um but yeah, you—it's uh, very much inspired by Evangelion, and you don't have a giant robot in this game. You can't do anything to stop the invasion. It's about the systemic failure of governments to stop the end of the world. And actually, coming out a few days from when we're recording is Season: A Letter to the Future by Scavenger Studios, uh, and that is another like apoc, very thematically apocalyptic setting at least. Uh, And the mechanics of that game is you can ride a bike, take pictures, record sounds and scrapbook because you are documenting what the world looks like on the eve of an apocalypse. uh, So that people in the coming time know what the world that you grew up in looks like. Uh, And it's uh, probably one of just my favorite games, period now. But yeah, it's like the... I think like one thing that we are really hitting on is games that uh, are constrained to uh, fighting, shooting, hitting, and like acquiring resources have a very different relationship uh, mechanically, but also narratively to their outlook on uh, apocalypse and like what society in the world looks like after apocalypse.
0: Yeah, and I think mechanics uh, actually like you know I'm getting I'm getting. The hairs on my arms and the back of my neck are standing up hearing you speak about these games because i think mechanics actually have a huge part to play in terms of how we approach these narratives and we approach these experiences right because i think fundamentally games are a lot more than narratives they're experiences and i think that's what uh makes a lot of us interested in them right and what makes them have more punching weight, what makes them more impactful for us so i'm not sure if any of you are familiar with that new uh little handheld console that came out like uh i think about a year ago this one called the play date uh where it just has a little crank on the side of it right and just something, uh, just a little novelty human interface device like that has so much as so many indie gems have come out on that platform, right? Utilizing that little crank mechanism. So whether it's something physical like that, and I know that's completely outside of the conversation we're having, but like whether it's something physical like that, that you can manipulate through a human interface device. Uh, longtime listeners are going to know I'm a big fan of uh, HIDs and uh, arcade cabinets. Um or just purely through uh the mechanism moving away from the violence that we see in in a lot of modern triple-a games right like uh you know i know it's getting a little old at this point but something like papers please you know very impactful game for a very very simple concept and if we look even further back in history i think if you look at our or the origins of these uh these pieces of media that we love so much we didn't have access to anything that could be construed, uh, construed as you know modern gameplay we're talking about text on a screen a lot of the time right and you can still have something that's very interactive and very impactful uh that proves to you down to its core games are about this experience that we're creating through our interactions with the media it doesn't always have to be about violence and a lot of the time having a way to interact with that media in a non-violent way in a way that makes you let's say think a little bit more often ends up being a more um, impactful experience at the end of the day
3: Yeah, or just like a different perspective on violence, because I think, you know, like we would probably all agree, Papers, Please is not lacking violence. It's a different kind of violence that like is something that is less explored. Um, Obviously, we can see the violence of a gun, but systemic violence of policy and bureaucracy is uh, covered up in fictional narratives that don't grasp that complexity, but also in the real world and propaganda and
0: ideology. Absolutely. Like, how much more impactful is it? How much harder does it hit you in a game like Papers, Please, when a bomb goes off than it does when you throw a stick of dynamite in New Vegas, right? Like, still, human lives, we're talking about digital human lives. But the way you process that information, you process that piece of media, I think is a lot heavier in Papers, Please. And I think most of our audience would probably agree with that. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think back to get things a little bit back on track in terms of the uh, the apocalypse stuff we're talking about, yeah, I mean, I would love to see more games that explore things um, in a way like that where we are more so documenting the ex- that experience, that hu- humanity of it, right? That, uh, that core of the experience to show that reflection, that side of things, I think that can uh, lead to games that, uh, you know, I keep using the word impactful because that's what keeps popping up in my head, right? These two experiences that are going to be more impactful, and that the end user can take a lot more away from, rather than just relying on old tropes, the way we have been for decades now, right? At least twenty years since the early two thousands. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, definitely. Because like, um, you've got to, like, because I remember my my first time playing like Frostpunk. Like, I, the, apart from the things i have spoken about, the one of the main things that hit me hard in the post apocalyptic setting in relation to it was uh, the if anybody else has played it, there's a there's a ding. That happens when someone dies, like either through like lack of healthcare or overwork or hunger. And when that when if something goes wrong, that that little ding really starts like picking away at you. And you you've got to wonder, like in terms of mechanics, when it comes to the AAA game. So like let's let's imagine Fallout Six. Like what can Fallout Six offer us? Because I remember being from like really loving Fallout Four, Fallout Sorry, Fallout Three when I was a lot younger. To like loving New Vegas, and then when Fallout 4 was coming along, it's like now I can look back and think critically. Like they really gave us the settlement buildings, like a big new mechanic that's going to be interesting, and it, it kind of just became a chore in a very gamified way. Like I don't know what it was trying to say to me beyond here is something else to do. Like I didn't know what else. Fallout can say about the post apocalypse. I I, I sound like I'm bashing Fallout at this point. Like, I've played too far too much Fallout to say that I don't like the game. (laughs) But, like, um, I'm just wondering, like, what else mechanically could Fallout do that would make me question it? Like, could they make the, like, how easy it is to use the mini nukes? Could they make that have, like, a slight more impact? Like, because at the end of the day, this is a game that's supposed to warn me about nuclear war, and I'm bombing around with a rocket launcher with nukes in just fire them at just anybody (laughs) anyway so what else can it do mechanically
0: and you know what that's where I think like mechanics like a like a camera really really shine right like a camera I think is a great transition because it's still point and shoot but again it's more human you're you're documenting things you're experiencing them through the character's eyes right In in a way that's much more connected than rolling around the mojave with a fat man blasting everything in sight but yeah i would i would absolutely like to see how developers can kind of take ideas like this and run with them and in into making more human experiences and into making experiences that are again divorced from the uh the idea of uh what, what's the word i'm looking for like Like mechanized violence, you know, like just factory turned out violence like Call of Duty, um, the Call of Duty gold standard we have for 20 years, right? Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. If that's your way of spending a good Saturday night, more power to you as far as I'm concerned. But I think there are plenty of ways that games, and again, I'm sure we can all agree on that, that games can be much more enticing to to, to an audience like like, like ourselves right some people who are looking for an experience that's going to be a little bit more hard-hitting something that we're going to be thinking of a few days afterwards right just like a good film or a good book and i think there's plenty of ways that developers developers can do that with mechanisms like cameras or sketchbooks or you know absolutely excited to see how they can take that and run Uh, But folks, I should say we're getting up on time. So if there is anything else you folks want to mention before we get there, I'm more than happy to hear it. Uh, It has been an absolute wonder having everybody here. I've loved the conversations we've been having. So please.
2: I just have one very quick thing in relation to what you were just saying. Like, you know, like what else can make me do that like has a lasting experience? I need post-apocalyptic games to stop making me kill small animals. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, it, it stays with me, like, but, you know, when I'm getting a video game, I feel like I've done it a lot in like, zombie games and post-apocalyptic ones now where it's just like, ah, uh, you know what, I'm fine. I get it. It's sad. <laughs> please, please make me do something else.
3: Yeah, some summary thoughts coming out of this is, like, part of why we're criticizing this and, you know, like, saying, like, oh, we need different kinds of violence, whatever, is because, like, I've spent a lot of time looking at Apocalypse Fiction over the past few years, and the thing is, like, these narratives, structurally, symbolically, they are all so repetitive. We keep telling this story again and again. We, you know, and it gets back to the idea that like history is ended. We can't imagine what the future looks like. And fiction is important to imagining what that looks like, you know, in like a fictional world that says that it is easier to steal from people than being community and cooperative with others around you. Is not original. It's been said so many times. And I'm just bored of those things personally, for my own enjoyment. Um, and I think that like I don't necessarily think that like media is gonna change the world, but I do think that like if the point of sci-fi, if there is a point of sci-fi and fiction and fantasy and speculative fiction, like there's nothing that's like really new being said in a lot of these triple works. They are inherently conservative.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? One thing I, I'm gonna I picked up on uh, in terms of what you just said there is like, media might not be able to change the world, but I think it can absolutely change people. And I think that's why all four of us are sitting here having this conversation today because there have been pieces of media like the ones we've been talking about that have been so impactful on us that we decided to take an hour out of our day to sit here and just have a conversation with them, right? And have a conversation about them for the benefit of others, not just for ourselves, to really kind of almost give give them a sales pitch on why they should look at these games critically, why they should look at them under the same lens we are, and why they should do that to take away the same kind of experiences that we've had. Uh, and that's why we do this podcast, folks. So once again, thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, so my name is Colin Walsh. You can find me on the internet on Instagram at cwglassworks or at www.cwglassworks.ca. And once again, we'll go around the circle, do a little outro, and we'll start with my good friend Dakota.
1: Uh, you can find me for now, anyways, uh, on Twitter at at Dakota Panero. Um, best way to get in touch with me probably be to, um, as sort of vainglorious as it sounds, uh, Google my name and it'll probably turn up my contact info at the University of Waterloo. Very on top of that email. So if you send something there, more than likely you'll get a response.
0: Yes,
2: I'm Christian Um Same in a way. If you Google my name, it should hopefully pop up. Uh, actually, you know what? That might be unsavory, Christian I, I'm on Twitter. Um, uh, it's uh, I think my handle is like CMCM1991. Gives away all of them, but like you can find me on there. But uh, as well, you could Google my book. Actually, that might work better. The Corruption of Play, and then you know what? My eBay will be somewhere. around there. <laughs> Happily talk. Thank you.
3: You can uh, find me on Twitter at the TheAutumnWrite, on co-host at autumn, and you can, if you want more of my thoughts on Apocalypse Fiction, you can read my column at Unwittable Monthly.
0: Perfect. So once again, I want to say a very special thank you to Autumn and Chris for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here, and we'd love to have you back on the podcast again in the future. Dakota, thanks for joining us here today. The FBS podcast is produced by Colin Walsh in association with the University of Waterloo. Thank you so much for your time today, everyone.